Yeah, well, Jeremy said kill a tree. We didn't know how many people would be here, so I did twice as many as we expect. Those are just question cards. Question cards, yeah, if you wouldn't mind help passing them out. All right. <laughs> okay, so everyone should get one sheet and one little card. I'll explain those in a second. One per person present. You take extras, we'll have plenty. <laughs> Almost there. No, you don't have to buy a binder. I just figured the machine does it for you, so why not? just to be safe if some of you did keep notes. Although I don't know how many notes Jeremy passes out. He, there was a time where you printed off things, right? All right. Uh, did this section get cards yet? Okay. We're almost there. Oh, you have already filled out your card. No. <laughs> okay. While those last while those last cards are getting passed out, uh, I wanted to print off, make it clear, but I didn't have time, so they're just blank cards. But the idea with those cards is. If while I'm speaking, a question comes to your mind that may be not exactly on topic, write it down on the card because a lot of times when you're discussing something, you think of things. Uh, we're going to try to keep somewhat a train of thought as we're going through the ABF so it won't be free Q&A. We will have time for questions and answers. And if you have a question specifically on what we're talking about, by all means, you, you can raise your hand and, and we'll take the questions. But the cards hopefully will give you the opportunity to write down other questions and then the final week that we have together we're going to answer some common objections um, to uh, biblical parenting and then we'll also answer and address some of the the recurring questions that you all have chances are if anyone in this room has a question someone else in the room has the same question and and so to not have to answer it five times, uh, we'll answer it once together. Okay, so that's what those cards are for. Um, let me start with a word of prayer for, for us, and then we'll begin. Lord, thank you for the time that we have to, to look at your word and to consider this important topic of parenting. We ask that you would bless this time, that you would show us what you have designed, what you have um, called us to. And we pray that you would help us to be faithful stewards of what you've entrusted to us. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let me begin by explaining what uh, I hope to cover. We have five weeks, which is really nothing when it comes to the huge topic of parenting. As, as I began preparing for this, I realized 16 weeks, no problem. I mean, you just pick a topic, we could spend all week talking about it. Um, and so what I've tried to do is be selective, and this is what I want to try to cover. You have it on your notes there. Today we're going to look at God's expectations in parenting, both the expectations that God has for us as parents and for our children. Uh, next week we're going to look at the tools, um, trying to understand the tools that God's given us in parenting. And then week three, we're going to zero in specifically on the first two years of parenting. And I know, I, I expect that that will be pretty popular because we have so many new parents. But the principles that are true in those first two years also continue for the rest of uh, their lives. So we're going to look specifically at those two years. Then the fourth week is kind of an interesting one that I haven't heard a lot of talk about, but the church's role in parenting. And, and by saying that, I don't just mean what should the church do for kids, but how do the children relate to the rest of the body and how can the body encourage the parents and the children in their, their goal of raising these godly children? And then the fifth week, we're going to answer common objections and then have a, Q, a time of Q&A, okay? So that's where we're going. Uh, very selective. We're obviously not covering everything. And if you have a question I don't cover, you have a card in your hand and you can write it down and we will get to it. And just to repeat what Jeremy said earlier, if at the end of this time you still feel like, I'm swimming. I don't know what is going on. I really need more help. Talk to one of us, uh, any of the elders. We want to help. We want to train you. We want to equip you. So that's where we're going. Now, before I begin uh, looking at B, why this is so important, I, I just want to give you a, a brief uh, bio, if you will, of, of where I'm coming from. I have four children of my own, which I think uh, just about all of you know. That's one area of experience that I have. I began uh, dealing with children and, and discipline in particular when I was a freshman or sophomore in high school. I was trying to remember, when did this start? When did I, what first time this came up? And I was a counselor at a little summer camp, a one-week-long summer camp. And it was all women leaders except for me. I was the only guy, and I became the disciplinarian. <laughs> And I was, I was, uh, I, I may have been a sophomore. It was the summer, so I'm not sure which one it was. But um, very quickly, the the children began to to uh, to listen to me more than, <laughs> than they would to the other people, and so that became my job. Uh, then, out of high school, I started working in a school and uh, in the local public school, junior high, kindergarten, uh, elementary, high school. I did that for five years. And so in the public school setting, I had a lot of ex exposure to what's going on with these kids. And I had a great opportunity to kind of sit back. Uh, I, I worked with students with disabilities. And so I was one-on-one -on -one with the students, but they were in the classroom. And so I got to not only help my, the student I was working with, but I got to watch what was going on in the classroom. And so often I got to see uh, that the teachers had no idea what they were doing. 
And of course, I'm a 19-year-old who knows everything anyway. But um, I, did, I got to see specifically in regard to discipline what worked and what didn't work and what the kids responded to and what they didn't respond to. Then uh, following uh, college and seminary, I worked in a junior high for, uh, I don't know, three, four years, and then was the principal of a, of a private school for four years, and that was preschool through 12th grade. So we had graduates, and we had two, two years and eight months. That was the first day we could take them. And man, we got them on their two-year and eight-month birthday. Um, and so that's I'm, I'm, when I speak about these things, I'm not just speaking about my own children, but I'm speaking from that broader experience. None of that means that what I tell you is true. None of that means that what I say is right. But I want you to know I'm not just talking about my four kids. Uh, this is kids in general. These are kids that I'm thinking of um, in general. <clears throat> Now, in our culture, there, there is an emphasis on certain aspects of parenting. We hate discipline in this culture. Uh, th- this is not hard for, for you to find out or see. You go into the grocery store, you go into the library, you go to a movie theater. Who rules the house? The kids do. And, and this is because the parents hate discipline. So in our culture, we have a big problem with a lack of discipline. We have undisciplined children. Now, there are different cultures in the world, some of which we would probably look at and say, they have too much discipline. Or maybe it's not that they have too much, they don't have enough love or, or affection or care. And I know that, I, I get that, and so what I'm uh, speaking to us about, what we're looking at in this series is not what the whole world needs to hear necessarily, but what our culture needs to hear. And that's why, thank you, Jeremy, <clears throat> appreciate that, I need that right away. Um, <clears throat> oh, that's nice. Oh, there's a verse in the Bible about that. Fresh water, Great. Um, what, what we're talking about is specific to our culture, to our church. We're focusing on what we believe there is a, um, uh, a need for further instruction on. And I get, I understand, I would not say these same things to maybe a Middle Eastern country that was strict, strict, strict. I would not go to them and talk and focus on discipline. You guys really need to discipline your kids. They probably get that and they need to hear something else. So those are all my my caveats. Now let's look. Why is this series so important? Why is it so important? And most of these Jeremy has has, uh, mentioned uh, in his sermon series. But first, number one, it leads to joy or sorrow. Parenting, whether you do it well or not, how it turns out is a result or will result in either joy or sorrow. Uh, turn to, to Proverbs because these, are, these first ones are all in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 10. And just listen to what Solomon says about parenting or children. The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father. But a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. So get the contrast. The the Hebrew Proverbs are are brilliant. Uh, They're very different from any of our poetry, but they're brilliant in setting up these couplets, these pairs, and, and, and it's all about parallelism. 
And we have two parallels. A wise son makes a glad father. A foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. So when you have a wise son, what is the result to, I believe, both father and mother? What is the result? Joy or gladness. So you want to be happy. You want to be joyful. You want to be glad. You want to delight in your son. What do you want him to be? You want him to be a wise son. Now, if we produce a wise son, we expect to be glad. We expect to be joyful. On the other hand, if our son turns out to be a fool, and some of you know this from personal experience, if your son turns out to be a fool, it is sorrow. It is so sorrowful. And there's no escaping it. Your son's your son forever, no matter what. Even if you can no longer talk to him or see him, he's still your son, and a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. So our own joy or sorrow is at stake. It's at stake. It's very, very important. Number two, it leads to either glory or shame. It leads to either glory or shame. I'm not going to go through all of the Proverbs. But the foolish son produces not only sorrow, but also shame. The son who hears your words, he hears the commandment, he hears the law, and he disregards it will bring you shame. Consequently, the wise son gives you glory. He gives you glory. Because when your son does what he is told to do, when your son is wise and attentive and listens to what you say and treasures your words up in his heart, what does he say about you? He says, you are important. You matter. You told him the truth. And consequently, you receive glory. Three, it leads to life or death. It leads to life or death. We can debate how literal the Proverbs are, but there's no doubt he wants us to believe, Solomon wants us to believe, that what we do in our parenting is a matter of life and death. The son who disregards his father's instruction, who dishonors his father and his mother, what is his result? His result is death. That's what we expect of him. On the other hand, the son who listens to and abides by the commandments of his father, we expect him to live long. Just as we, we, we saw in the parenting series in Exodus, what is the first commandment with a promise? It is honor your father and mother. And what is the promise? That you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. So life or death is at stake. Life or death is at stake. Number four, it leads to either love or hate. Now, here's what I mean. Depending on how you, you parent, you will either hate or love your children. You, you will hate them if you do your parenting in a certain way. You will love them if you do it in a different way. Look at... Uh, Proverbs 13, 24, and we'll come back to this in just a minute. I'll look more detailed. Verse 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. 
So we have the one who spares and we have the one who is diligent. The one who spares, does he love or hate? He hates his son. Now, we know every mom in this country who does not spank, who spares the rod, we know they all would, to their dying breath, claim they love their kids. And I don't think they're lying. They're just wrong. Because God tells us that when we spare the rod, we do hate them. We are hating them. But the one who is diligent loves them. He loves them. And so God defines for us love and hate. What does it mean to love? Well, God tells us if you're diligent to discipline them, you are loving them. If, on the other hand, you spare the rod, then you hate them. And so the love of our children, whether or not we truly love them or not, is at stake. Whether or not we hate them is at stake. So that's just a sample. We could say a lot more about why it's so important, but I just to get you uh, some of the feeling of, of why this is so important, I want to start there. Now, let's look at uh, our first point for this morning. What are God's expectations for us? For us as parents, what are God's expectations? And then we'll look at God's expectations for our children. So God's expectations for us. First, God requires us to be diligent. As we just read, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. What is God calling us to do or to be? He's requiring us to be diligent. The the Hebrew word is literally to be on the lookout for, to be a watchman. And it's a it's a awkward construction in the Hebrew because if you were to translate it literally, it would it would be be on the lookout to beat them, be on the lookout to beat your children. Now that's too literal because that's not what it means. The point is you're on the lookout for the need to discipline. You're on the watch for the need to discipline. Defining diligent, what does it mean to be diligent? It means to be watchful and ready to act when needed to the fullest of our ability. You're on the lookout for the need to do it, and when needed, you do it with all you've got. You put everything you have into it. I want to give you the picture of diligence by by talking about a gardener. I think you can relate to this. You know what a gardener is, and maybe you're not the best gardener, but you know someone who has Mary's here. Mary's a wonderful gardener. But we have many gardeners in our church. Many gardeners. Oh, there's Patty, too. I know Patty's a wonderful gardener also. What does a, what does a, a diligent gardener do? He walks out how often? Maybe once a month, so every six weeks. Every day, right? The gardener walks by the garden, or virtually every day. And what do they do? Ah, there's a weed. Put a note down. Oh, there's another weed. Note down. Wow, look at that. That plant's dying. They just take notes and then they go inside, right? Not a chance. When they see a weed, what does the good gardener do? Pulls it out. And like everyone who's ever gardened, you try to pull that weed out, and usually the first one breaks off, and the root is in the ground, and you know, man, I pulled it too hard. And so what do you have to do? Well, who cares? I can't see it anymore. Just put a little dirt over the root, and that'll just be fine. 
No, a good, a diligent gardener does what? Well, I broke it off. Now I get the trowel out and you try to dig it out. And if the trowel doesn't work, you get a shovel. And if you still can't get it out, you find a way to get it out. That's when you call your husband (laughs) or Roundup. (laughs) Now, you may have trouble getting out a particular route, but what do you what do you never do? You never ignore it. Somehow, some way, I've got to take care of it because you know if I don't, what's going to happen? It's going to spread. You know that one weed doesn't stay one weed; it becomes ten weeds, and it becomes a bigger weed until, in just a matter of a month or two, the whole garden is nothing but weeds. I've experienced that. That's what a diligent gardener does. It looks for every need and it meets every need. That's the picture I want you to have of what it means to be a diligent parent. That when you see a problem in your child's life, it is not, ah, he really has a bad attitude. Isn't that interesting? Huh, he was talking back to mom quite disrespectfully. Interesting. What do you do when you find a weed? You pull it out. You find a way to pull it out, no matter what it takes. So, number one, we should always be on the lookout for what needs discipline. We should always be on the lookout for what needs discipline. You've got to be attentive. Uh, I, I, I don't know if I speak more to moms or dads, but I can imagine the dad who gets home from a long day of work is exhausted, and he's sitting down in the chair about to eat dinner, and the kid needs a spanking. What are you going to do? Are you going to say, well, I'm tired. I'll do that later. You, you need, and it begins with dads, it always begins with dads, you need to be on the lookout for the need to discipline. And when you realize the discipline is needed, you've got to give it everything you've got. Put down the paper, turn off the TV, whatever it is that's distracting you, the cell phone, and get to work. Work needs to be done. So we need to be on the lookout for what needs discipline, and then we need to be ready to carry out that discipline to the best of our ability. All of us are different in our levels of ability. Some of us uh, will have strengths in one areas and weaknesses in another. God doesn't require you to do what he requires everyone else to do. God requires you to do what you can do because he gifted you to do it. So be faithful to the best of your ability. That's what he wants from you. And he'll bless that faithfulness no matter how different we are. He'll bless every one of us if we're faithful with what he's given us. Number three, and and, and the way I've uh, organized this is, all right, that's what God expects us to do or that's what he requires us to do, but what in reality are we going to anticipate? We anticipate and guard against our own laziness. Parenting is hard work. And what does the lazy gardener get in the garden? Weeds and thorns and thistles. And every one of us is lazy in our hearts. Every one of us. No matter how old you are and how diligent and how hard of a worker you are, every one of us faces laziness. Because laziness is not just how much overall you work. 
Laziness is failing to do the work that needs to be done. And until the job is done, what does every one of us face? Laziness. We're tempted to quit before the job is done. So we need to anticipate that. You will be lazy. And by lazy, again, I don't mean that you don't ever work or that you're a sluggard and you do no work all day and your house is a total mess. I mean, you don't do everything you needed to do. You may do very many things, but if you neglect one thing you do know that you should do, then you're being in that moment lazy. And then we also anticipate and guard against giving up. Some of you may work as hard as you can. You've tried everything you can think of, but you know it's not working. Don't give up. Do not give up. Don't concede. I guess they're just a rebellious child. Don't give up and say, I guess I'm never going to help them learn to do this or that. Keep going. Just like the gardener. And just for fun, what happens when the shovel doesn't work and the roundup doesn't work and you talk to your husband and he can't get it out and he's got the pickaxe out there? How about a tractor? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> How about an excavator, right? That could probably get it done. And if that doesn't work, call, call up the, the Iowa State Extension. They've got advice. And you're going to go and talk to your neighbor who has a good garden. You're going to say, what did you do when you had this weed? The picture I want you to have is if my child has these problems in his life, I cannot let them go. I have to deal with them. And I, you may not know how to deal with them. Don't give up. Try something else. Talk to someone. Talk to one of the pastors. Talk to your friends. Tell them, I've got this problem. What do I do? Don't give up. Never give up. So God requires us to be diligent, to be on the lookout and to give everything we have. Second, God requires us to be just. In Ephesians 6, when when Paul says, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, he says, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, what type of instruction and discipline does the Lord give us? Is it ever unjust? Never. It is always, always just. Just is responding to our children according to their conduct. Okay, Responding, you could add appropriately, to our children based on their conduct. So when our children are good, what does justice call for? Praise and reward. When our children's conduct is bad, what does it call for? Discipline and correction. So we reward obedience and we punish disobedience. If we don't, are we bringing them up in the instruction of the Lord? No, we aren't. Because the Lord does not reward evil and He does not punish good. The world does. God never does. He never does. So we have to be diligent to be just. It's hard work to be fair. Now, there's a difference between being fair and being just. But we have to work diligently. We have to work hard at giving our children what is 
based on their behavior, responding to them appropriately. Responding to them appropriately. Now, this probably will be hardest because it requires consistency. Number two is we should be consistent in administration of both. Here's what I found. Uh, This is just anecdotal. But what I found is the most provoking thing for children. It's that one day they get in trouble for something and the next day they don't. So the third third day they don't know what to expect. What, what typically happens is you say, I don't know running in the house. Well, I don't know if that's a rule for you or not, and I don't care. That doesn't bother me if your children run in the house. But when dad says no running in the house, now it matters. Okay? You say no running in the house, and then they run in the house and you say nothing. And they run in the house and you say nothing. And then they run in the house and you're so fed up, you yell at them or you send them to their room or maybe you even spank them. And then you say, why doesn't this work? What do you think? You said one thing and you did something else and then you did something else and then you did what you were supposed to and you're shocked that it didn't get through to them. When, and, and, and we could show God's same conduct in this, when did God put people to death in the church for being hypocrites? <laughs> At the very beginning, right away, Acts chapter 5, right? Ananias and Sapphira, dead. Why? So that God could show us he means business. You do not lie to the Holy Spirit. You do not say one thing and mean another or say one thing knowing it's not False. So we have to be consistent in our administration. We be consistent in our praise and our rewards. We're consistent in our discipline and our correction. And when we're inconsistent, we do tend to provoke our children to wrath. And then what happens is, what happens is we say, no running in the house. They do it. We don't discipline them. They do it. We don't discipline them. Finally, we get so fed up, we discipline them. And then we say, Maybe it's just not reasonable for us to ask our kids to not run in the house. Maybe our rules are too harsh. (laughs) Because it didn't work, and so we're trying to figure out what happened. Apply it consistently and see what happens. Generally speaking, there are many places in the world where children cannot run, and they know it. What happens if they get on the bus and they run in the bus? What happens if they, in the middle of their class, they get up and start running? Is that going to fly? It's not going to fly. And guess what? They can do it. They can obey the rule. What is the difference between a classroom where they know not to run and your home where they're not quite sure if they should run or not? The difference is one was enforced and the other was not. So we're setting boundaries for them. And this is justice. We're consistent in our administration of reward and punishment. Number three, we anticipate and guard against leniency and harshness. Now, I believe uh, overwhelmingly our problem is leniency, not harshness. But there are some who are harsh. They're very consistent in their discipline, but they're completely unloving. It's never good enough for dad. Maybe some of you even had a father or mother like that. Jeremy. Am 
experience, I've found a connection between the two. If I'm being lenient, it'll provoke me to the point where when I do discipline, I'm doing it harshly or in anger. Like you said, the fourth, okay. <laughs> when you finally step in, I'm actually angry. And mm -hmm. so I, I even see a connection between the two. Yeah. So what Jeremy was saying is the leniency leads to harshness. You're lenient, you're lenient, you're lenient. They don't obey you. So you get so mad, you're then harsh. Yeah, that can definitely be the case. We need to guard against both. We don't want to be harsh. We don't want to be lenient. We want to be consistent. We want to be just. That's our goal. Number four, we anticipate and guard against inconsistency. This is huge. We have to work hard at being consistent. And generally speaking, all it takes is a couple of times to prove that you're consistent and you don't have to come back that often. There are exceptions to that. But when you say don't do this and they do it and you discipline them and they do it and you discipline them, usually that settles it. Uh, you know the story about an elephant, how they keep an elephant with a rope around its leg tied to a stake and that's all it takes to keep them in place. Well, the elephant could easily break that string. You know that? I'm not getting a lot of nods. <laughs> the, the, the training begins by them basically putting iron shackles on the elephant. And when it tries to pull it, it can't break it. And once the elephant knows when something's around my ankle, I can't move, all it takes then is a little string because they won't even try to break it because they already learned the lesson. And it's similar with our kids. When you discipline them the first time and the second time and they get it, generally speaking, you don't have to keep doing it over and over again. If you do have to keep doing it over and over again, you probably didn't get your point across the first time. But we're fighting, uh, we're fighting against inconsistency. All right, now let's spend the rest of our time looking at our expectations or God's expectations for our children. The two main commands, these aren't new to you. You've heard them. Jeremy covered them. But number one, God requires our children to honor us. Now, I don't know. Does that make you uncomfortable saying God requires my children to honor me? Might make you feel guilty or ashamed that you're saying it that bluntly. But is it true? God requires your children to honor you. He requires that of them. Don't be uncomfortable saying that. Because if you say, well, I couldn't require them to honor me, that would be too selfish or something along those lines. You've just neglected the main command that God gives to children. The main command God gives to them, you've neglected. Don't neglect that. It's not wrong for you to say, if at work you are the boss, I'm the boss. <laughs> it's not wrong for you to say, if you're the captain on a team, guys, I'm the captain. Listen to me. And that's what you're telling your children. I am not to be listened to because of how important I am. I'm to be listened to because God has made me the father of this family. And God has called you to honor me as the father. Be comfortable saying that. Don't be ashamed that you're to be honored. What does it mean to honor? It means to treat someone as weighty, 
and significant. Literally, the Hebrew word is heavy. And I know moms don't appreciate that, so I changed it to weighty. <laughs> that it, it, it is a very basic word. A rock is kavod. It's honorable. It's heavy. A rock is weighty compared to a stick. It's more massive. It has more weight to it. God requires our children to treat us as weighty and significant. Now, that's remarkable. For, because for, we, you know that God calls our children to obey us. We got that. Okay, they better obey us. And, and we oftentimes will miss completely whether or not they honor us. You see the difference between obedience and honor? Obedience, <clears throat> at least externally, you can get obedience without honor. And sometimes you can honor somebody without obeying them. Sometimes. But honor is about the attitude. It's about the way you think of someone else. And our children need to learn to honor us. Not because of us, but because of who God has made us, what God has appointed us to be. So number one there, you're blank. Our children should learn to treat us uh, seriously. And I want to give you the picture for this of a judge. When you walk into a courtroom, <clears throat> uh, I'm sure all of you have been called to jury duty at some point in your life, and you're sitting there and everyone's chit-chatting and there's commotion and movement all about the courthouse. And before the judge walks in the door, what do you hear? All rise. And if you start talking, you may very well be removed from the courtroom. You may very well be charged for something. Uh, what is it called? Contempt. Thank you. You may very well be. Why? And then what, everyone rises. The judge walks in. The judge sits down. Then we're seated. What is that showing the judge? Honor. And if you disagree with the judge, I, I've been listening to these Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has all their briefings online. You can listen to the required. I've been listening to some of these, and it's remarkable because you have these lawyers who are arguing their case, and sometimes they vehemently disagree with the justices. But no matter what, whenever they speak to them, it's always justice or honor or uh, what do they call it? Chief justice. Always. And it's like almost annoying that they're saying chief justice so frequently, chief justice, chief justice. Why? Because they know the way out of that courtroom is to treat them disrespectfully. So no matter what goes on, this person is important. Okay? Now think about this for a second. Do your children view you, do they give you honor? Now, that's a hard question, just yes or no to answer. Compare yourself to the way they honor their friends. Who is more important to them? Who matters more to them? You or their friends? When their friends say one thing and you say another, you're going to find out who they honor. 
And what the, the picture that we should have of our children, the desire we have for our children, is that when a friend says something that is untruthful or contrary to what mom and dad have said, that they would say, well, it's nice that you think that, but I know better because dad or mom said something else. But the picture we have in our society I think you'll agree, is one that mom and dad don't matter at all, and it's all about the friends. Whatever the friends say matters. <clears throat> you could also think about a policeman who's just pulled you over in the car. <clears throat> I, I've been pulled over a couple of times. I've never gotten a ticket. I once had a, like a light off that I didn't know about. Officer pulled me over. I was going the speed limit, not doing anything wrong that I knew of but I was shaking. I think that's common when you get pulled over. You, you, you get really nervous. Why? The officer comes over and he says, can I have your license and registration? What do you want those for? Not a chance, right? And if you're on a cell phone call and he walks up, I'm pretty sure you're going to hang up. Why? Because he matters at that moment in time. He matters a lot. You honor him. You treat him as significant, as weighty, as important. And that's how our children should treat us. You'll find a lot in uh, older children, teenagers, that they may learn to obey you externally because they've learned it's not worth fighting about. So they'll do what you say, but they roll your, their eyes they, they sigh. <sighs> that, what does that show? It shows dishonor. It shows disrespect. And it's not about just getting them to obey, but honoring. We'll get more to that in a second. Um, when children are allowed to argue with you, and I mean argue, not just discuss something in a polite way, but argue with you, you're allowing them to dishonor you. You would never argue with the judge. You might disagree, you might bring up your points, but when the judge says, no, you stop talking, when you let your children leave while you're still talking, when you let them interrupt you or ignore you or pretend they didn't hear you, you're letting them treat you as if you don't matter. Deal, deal with that. You've got to train them to honor you. God calls them to do that. Now, <clears throat> we anticipate and guard against our children treating us lightly. You'll get this even in little children. I'm looking at the little ones on the laps. Do, do they fear dad yet? Well, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe Winston. Um, when a newborn comes out, they don't fear anything. They have no fears they just like faces, and that's a cute nose, so I'll grab it, and I like that hair, and I like it, and they just kind of grab, and there's no fear. There's none at all. But we, that, that's light. They're treating us lightly. But when a 13-year-old does that, treats you like their friend, then they're treating you as something that's light, like a feather, not like a rock. They need to learn to honor us. Then lastly, God requires our children to obey us. And I want to define obedience this way, to conform your will and desires to those of another. 
to conform your will and desires to those of another. God says, obey, children, obey your parents in the Lord. He also says, children, obey your parents in everything. In everything. Our children should learn to obey us in everything. Now, that's not going to happen in one day. It happens one step at a time. Uh, in, a, in two weeks, we'll talk specifically about how to, to train our one-year-old, our eight-month-old, our 18-month-old, and all of that stuff. But everything they're called to obey us in. Our children should learn to obey us also from their hearts. From their hearts. And this is the hardest one for teenagers. They learn to obey you and they hate you while they do it. The picture, I'm always talking to the junior high and high schoolers about this. The picture of the child, mom says, will you take out the trash? Oh, fine. And they go and they take the, they get the trash and they take it out. And mom's like, yes, they did the trash. I'm so happy. What is this sighing and this fine and stomping and slamming the door? What is all of this saying? I hate you. They're screaming, no, 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 even though they're doing it on the outside. Now, in the Bible, we have a group of people who acted like that towards God. They honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And we call them the Pharisees. They're hypocrites. They're whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they look good, but on the inside, they're full of dead men's bones. They're unclean. So our children have to learn to obey us from their heart. Now, we anticipate and guard against rebellion in everything. <laughs> Your children will disobey you in everything. Expect them to disobey you in everything. Expect them to disobey you in the smallest and in the largest things but you're going to guard against that by training them, by disciplining them. And as you discipline them, they will learn to listen. They'll learn to obey. They'll learn to respect you. And then when the big things come around, what's the default? It's obey and listen. If you wait until the big things come, it will be too late. Number four, we anticipate and guard against mere external obedience. We guard against that external obedience. Just let's close with this. Proverbs 23. Verse 24. This is what we say to our children. This is what we call them to. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. We are after their hearts. That is what we want. We don't want good little boys and girls who hate us on the inside and as soon as they're out of their home, our home, they're gone because they've been waiting 18 years to get out of this place. Give me your heart. That's what we want from our children. We can't neglect their external obedience. That is important, but we have to get to the heart. Let me close in a word of prayer.
Lord, thank you for this time to introduce these topics. And I know every one of us has areas that we need to grow in and work on. I pray that you would make those clear to us, that we would consider whether or not we have been diligent in disciplining our children, whether or not we've been consistent in it. Show us whether or not, Lord, our children honor us. And if they don't, help us now before it is too late to teach them to honor us, not for our sake, but for yours. Not because we are so great, but because you have put us there in their lives. And we ask, Lord, that through the conviction that you bring, there would be change, that we would become a people characterized by wise sons and daughters, by children who have given us their hearts and who ultimately will give their heart to you, that you might be praised in our church and throughout this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.